This morning, we will continue in the series that we're in, and uh, I want to share a quote with you. Some of you may have heard this quote. It's from a a motivational speaker named Jim Rohn. Uh, His quote is that you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. The, The things that you think, the words that you share, your attitudes and actions, uh, even to the end of your destiny and success, Jim Rohn would say that this is the compilation and uh, conclusion of all of the people, the five people that you spend your time with. Now, like a lot of motivational speakers, I don't know if that's actually true or not. Like, it sounds good to hear it, but I I don't know if it's true. And frankly, I don't even know how I would conduct a scientific experiment uh, to determine whether you are actually the average of the five people you spend your most time with. But I think that it is an interesting thought experiment. Like, how have we become the people that we are? I'm guessing that you have not been a static creature your entire life, but you have changed over time. And people will will look to maybe two transformational poles. They'll look at uh, nature or nurture as two extremes. And maybe just to think, like, am I a slave to my genetics and to the decisions that my parents and my grandparents would have made that are far outside of my control? Am I a product of genetics? Or am I free? to become whoever I want to be. If I can just turn the right dials and flip the right switches, can I become whomever I desire to be? Frankly, I don't know how much of who I am today has been impacted by the people or the environments that I have been surrounded by. I do have some anecdotal evidence that would suggest that that may be the case. For instance, this week, I was uh, over in the youth center in our admin wing, um, walked into our conference room and sat down as I waited for uh, Pastor Kyle and Pastor Joel to come on in. And while I was sitting there just by myself, this is what I was doing. Does anybody know that tune? Yeah. Okay, and just so that we're clear, like, whistling the tune to Elmo's World is a new thing for me. (laughs) Some of you probably know, uh, but I have been spending some time with a young lady these days uh, who is immersed in Elmo. We're talking a dancing Elmo, a tickle me Elmo, an Elmo potty, uh, Elmo jammies, Elmo songs. Uh, It's not Bethany. Uh, but my world, if I'm not at Keystone, I am living in Elmo's world, uh, and it shows, and I'm, I'm wondering, I, or I would guess likely that you might be able to share similar anecdotal stories of how people in your own life have shaped the way that you think and speak and act, and it, it might be your uh, mom or your dad or your best friend, or a spouse. It might be people at work, or other friends, and coworkers and neighbors. I'm, I'm guessing that to some degree, they have ended up impacting the way that you think, and feel, and act. 
maybe not that you're the average of those people, but for better or worse, these people are influencing us. I know that for me, as a, as a preacher who has sat underneath the preaching of Pastor Keith for more than two decades, I find my own self saying things or doing things that Pastor Keith has done. Now, some of it, I, I believe, is actually intentional because I want to be like him. But some of it, I think, is either like a, a kind of subliminal imitation where just by nature of being immersed in what he does, I end up becoming like him. And I wonder whether or not, like, if I could spend enough time around you, if I could listen to your accent or understand what kind of slang words you use, if I could see how you dress, uh, I could see your truck proclivity or sports team affinity, if I, if I could observe certain nuances about you, whether or not I might be able to tell who your friends are or who your family is. And I think it's because in some ways we know that... The, they're having an impact on us. And the scriptures would indicate something as well. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, As we behold, we are being transformed. As we behold and are exposed to certain things, we are transformed and changed as a people. And that's one of the reasons that Keystone beats the drum of spending daily time in God's word. Because we want his voice and his presence to be one of the primary influences in the kinds of people that we become. We want to be a people that know God's word or shaped by God's word, maybe like a sponge that when you put it into a fluid and immerse it in it, it ends up becoming saturated with whatever it's in. We want to be a people that are saturated with God's word. In the same way that we might uh, want to have our own reflection in some ways mirror the reflection of God like a, like a baby. Once you end up getting to see a picture of Kyle's new baby Jackson. And if you can get your hands on a baby picture of Kyle when he was a baby. Uh, you'll have a good sense uh, and trust that little Jackson is definitely Kyle's son because he looks like his daddy. We want to look like our father in heaven. And that's not something uh, that I, I think necessarily happens automatically. This morning, my intention in, in gathering together is that I want to lift our eyes to see a world that is outside of our fingertips. We are in a series that we're calling Heartbeat. We've strategically chosen five different psalms that we believe uh, are God's word, that express his heart or passion for things. And we want our own hearts to uh, beat with his. We want to play these songs on repeat until our souls resonate and reverberate with God's own song. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be in the, the Psalm chapter 67, and so I'd invite you to turn there a while. But this psalm in particular is a psalm that directs our eyes to see the purposes that God has, not just for us, but for the world. My big idea that I'll hit on today is that God's heart beats for us and. God's heart beats for us and the lost and unreached and if we want our own hearts to beat like God's, we need to have a vision that looks beyond our own 
homes. And because we don't have the power to make that happen, I want to pray for us. Father, we turn our face to you this morning in worship, believing that you are the one true and living God. Father, I pray that you would grant us the grace of wisdom, that your spirit would deliver us revelation so that we would know you clearly. I pray, Lord, that as you open our eyes, that we might see the the hope that you've called us to, the riches of your glorious grace, the immeasurable greatness of your power in us and through us, and that this morning you might, in some ways, shock our hearts back into rhythm to beat along with yours. And so, Lord, we ask that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Psalm 67 beginning in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This psalm is typically lumped together with other psalms of thanksgiving. But I'm hoping that you picked up on the fact that as we read this psalm, that there are a multitude of requests in it. I wonder if you heard them. Verse 1, God, be gracious to us. God, bless us. God, make your face to shine upon us. A lot of us there, us, us, us. Verses 3 through 5, Let all the peoples, God, let all the peoples praise you. Let all the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let all the peoples praise you. There's a heart that extends both for us. God bless us. Be gracious to us. Make your face to shine upon us. And, both and, and for them, and for all people, and for all nations to the ends of the earth. It's worth noting because I believe in some ways we might think or maybe more accurately act as if it's one or the other. In the same way that we're going to analyze this prayer, we can analyze our own prayers and see if the heartbeat of our prayers matches the heartbeat of God's prayer. And so we we look at this verse and, and find, okay, Some of us might link up more with verse 1 than verses 3 through 5. If you could analyze your prayers, you might find that to some degree they are limited to or consumed with prayers for ourselves. Lord God, I just ask that you would be gracious to me. I just ask, Lord, that you would bless me. I just ask that your face would shine upon me, help me, heal me, make me happy. And it's all about me. Some of us, it might extend to an us as long as we consider us just family. Father God, I just ask that you would 
help my spouse. I pray that you would save my child. I pray that you would uh, lead us, guide us, protect us, care for us, help us be a happy, godly family. There may be others of us, though, for whom our prayers are consumed with or limited to only prayers for others. And so we pray maybe like the psalmist in verses 3 through 5 where we pray for other people. Father, I just ask that you would save the nations. I just ask that you would help the nations and heal the nations. I pray, Lord, that your face would shine upon the nations so that your name would be great among the people who don't yet know you. And what the psalmist is is doing in Psalm 67 is he's showing us that God is concerned with both and, both us and others. That's why my big idea is that God's heart beats for both us and for the lost and unreached, for our neighbors and the nations, for those who are near to us and far from us. God has a global passion for people. And so to to study this passage, I'm going to ask three questions. I'm going to ask first, uh, what does this psalm teach us about blessing? What does this psalm teach us about worship? And then how can we orient our own hearts to beat like God's? So the the first question, what does this psalm teach us about blessing? This psalm reminds us that it is good and right to come to God and seek our requests. It's good and it's right to come to God in prayer and seek our requests. And one of the reasons I believe that it's it's not just wrong, but actually good to come to God is because that's what Jesus models for us in the New Testament. The psalmist is doing it and, and Jesus is saying, that's good. It's good for us to come. He, he compares God to a heavenly father and we as his children and he invites his children to, to come, seek, knock, and see their answers or, or answers to their prayers fulfilled. And not only that, in, in Luke 18, Jesus ends up describing the fact that God is not bothered by our persistent pestering. He wants us to come continually over and over and over again and and the reason is because it's right to do so when we come to God seeking our requests in prayer it honors God it shows that we trust that he is able to do what we cannot do I love the fact that my little daughter who's 18 months old consumed with Elmo comes with me comes to me with requests um, elm, elm, peas, peas. Just that, that little voice, that little request. It, like, I find joy in that, and it honors me as a dad. Because for Eloise, like, she recognizes that she cannot do certain things, but there's someone who can, and she demonstrates her belief and faith and trust in me as she comes, believing that daddy can do what she cannot do. God is honored by our coming and seeking. And more so, the second point that I want to draw out in this is that this psalm reminds us that these blessings have a purpose. There's a key word in verse 2 that links together a blessing and a purpose. It's that word that, God, 
We ask that you would be gracious to us and bless us and make your face to shine upon us that, or you might read it as so that, so that what, so that something might happen. This blessing has a purpose. Now, it, it may not feel in some ways that God has blessed us, and I recognize that some of us, depending upon our current circumstance, may feel like God has turned his face from us. And what I would invite us to do in that moment is to literally take inventory or count your blessings. God has been gracious to us in a whole host of ways, in big ways and small ways, in salvation and in provision. And, and so maybe in those moments where we feel like God's favor has turned and he's not been gracious and he's not been blessing and he's not, you don't feel his face shining upon you, that you can just recount, what has God done to transform me as a people? How has he already changed me? And, and maybe more so, like, what else has he given me? What are the good things that I enjoy? Believing that all good gifts come from the Father's hands, what, what are the things that I do enjoy, even in the midst of sorrow or suffering? Make a list. Write it down. And every time that you feel like a God's face has turned from you, go visit that list so that you might be reminded of the fact that God has been gracious to us. But these blessings ought not to terminate with us. The blessing has a purpose, and it's in verse 2. Verse 2 says that, that, that the world would know God's ways, that they would know his saving power, that we would find joy in the fact that he is a just God, that he is a powerful God who rules the nations, that he is a God who wants our joy and to have it spill over into praise, even to the ends of the earth. If our blessings end up terminating on our own comfort and do not roll up in our thanksgiving and to bless the world with joy, we miss a bit of the heartbeat of God's passion in the blessing. Personal salvation and forgiveness that you have as believers, those are good gifts. You might experience times of financial prosperity and provision, and those are good gifts. You might be experiencing personal health or healing, and, and those are good gifts. But these good gifts are not the end goal. God has a purpose for these. Because God's not a kind of cosmic vending machine or heavenly butler who exists solely to find ways to serve our whims and needs that we might be happy and comfortable. And it's one of the reasons I find a bit of unease around various evan, uh, evangelistic approaches. There are, are, are some ways that we can talk about what God does for us in salvation that seem to terminate on our own comfort. Maybe if your evangelism strategy focuses on the fact that we are trying to help people experience heaven and not hell, or to experience a reunion with our lost family and friends, a, a future, an eternal future without suffering or sorrow, a big, big house with lots and lots of food. If that's what we're pitching to people, like who doesn't want that? Demons would want that. If we end up terminating our 
blessing on ourselves, we may find that we find more joy in God's thing than God's presence. And God wants us to rejoice and be happy in Jesus and not our goods. The reason that God has blessed us is so that these might spill up, that he would be known, feared, revered, praised, and enjoyed by the entire world, by all peoples, all nations, to the ends of the earth. Which leads us into my second question. What does this psalm teach us about the nature of worship? I'll say first, this psalm reminds us that our joy, that our joy and God's praise are not at odds with each other. Verse 4 is the literal centerpiece of this psalm. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And it's flanked then with verses 3 and 5 that proclaim, let the nations, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And I'm wondering if that doesn't spark a kind of question in your own heart like, Is it strange that the psalmist wants the world to be happy, to be glad, to sing with joy? And is that different from what he prays, that he would hope that God would let the peoples praise him? Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he read the psalms as an unbeliever, Uh, found great difficulty in psalms like Psalm 67. Even as an unbeliever, he recognized that the, the scriptures were, according to Christian doctrine, God's own words, his own voice, that he is the author of all scriptures. And so when he would read the psalms that in some ways make the petition, praise me, praise me, praise me, he's hearing God as this God saying, I want you to praise me, I want you to praise me. And he compared God to some vain, insecure woman uh, who goes to her husband and tells him, husband, I want you to tell me how pretty I am. And it disgusted C.S. Lewis. That is until he discovered a, a kind of relationship that exists with all joy and all praise. He records his discovery in a book called The Reflections on the Psalms, um, and he says this, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? C.S. Lewis says, I, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. What C.S. Lewis saw was that we delight to praise what it is that we enjoy. And so, for God to desire his praise, 
he must also desire our general joy in him. And so this psalm now reminds us that worship flows from delight, not duty. Worship is intended to be our delight and not just our duty. The psalmist is pointing to the connection between our heart's desire to be happy and God's own purposes to be known and praised. And the reason for our joy and the reason for God's praise is the same reason. If we could know God, know his ways, if we could know him and his saving power, if we could know him and his powerful rule and just reign, if we could know that and experience it, what would happen is is that our own hearts would be full of joy and it would spontaneously overflow into praise. And so as the psalmist is praying, let the nations be glad, he's rooting that in the fact that there's a reason for that and that reason ought to spill out into praise. Which leads me to the last question I want to ask. How How can we orient our own hearts to beat like God's? And I have uh, one point and then three, in some ways, examples. I I believe this psalm reminds us that God saves us and sends us. God saves us and sends us. God's mission to the entire world, his desire to be praised and known by the whole world is not a new mission it was the mission that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 1.28. He blessed them and told them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with his blessing. When God came to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then made the same promise to his children, he said, I'm going to bless you and your family so that all the families on earth will be blessed through you. When Jesus met with his disciples, he told them and he tells us that we have been blessed to bless the world. And so it's not a new passion, but what this is, is Psalm 67 is a mission-minded prayer. And I have three ways that I believe a a mission-minded heart can impact the way that we live, act, and feel as a people. The first, a a mission mindset turns luxurious liabilities into strategic assets. A mission mindset can take luxurious liabilities and turn them into strategic assets. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the scriptures are full of cautionary tales of blessing. As we read through the New Testament, see what Jesus has to say about money. Maybe his conversation with the rich young ruler. He would say, it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a similar thing. Paul picks up on this in 1 Timothy. when He says that money is the root of all evil. In fact, when when God is working with the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, he says, I'm warning you, when you move out into the promised land, you will experience blessing. Houses, fields, livestock, you will be blessed as a people and there will be a temptation in that to become puffed up with pride. 
that would say my strength and the power of my might has given me all of these good things. Like, scriptures warn us, telling us, like, no money, no problems. Like, blessings are risky business in, in, in some ways for me to invite us to seek our own blessing should give us pause because of the liability that can be attached to certain blessings. In fact, there are some people who might look at the blessings that they have and, and they recognize, like, my heart is so deceptive and so easily led astray from God to goods, and so I don't want any. If, if God blesses me, I'm just going to give it all away. If good things come my way, I'm going to have a generous heart and just give it away. I don't, I don't want anything. It's not good for my own soul. And I'm not going to condemn that kind of attitude when it comes to money. It is dangerous, risky. And yet, a mission mindset can convert those liabilities into assets. It can take blessings and use them for a purpose. In World War II, there was an ocean liner called the RMS Queen Mary. Uh, It's currently docked outside Long Beach in California right now. You can go visit it if you want. Uh, In its heyday, before the war, it was a luxurious ocean liner. Uh, All of the celebrities that would have existed in the 1930s would have uh, gone across the Atlantic Ocean on this ship. But when wartime came, history records the fact that this luxury ocean liner was converted into a warship. They painted it a stark gray. Uh, They put a gun on it. They outfitted its cabins that would have been a a, a spacious apartment for one or two people, and and they turned it into a place where they had bunks eight high. There was 18 inches between uh, the bunks so that it would have the capacity to move not just 3,000 people in peacetime, but 16,000 people. The war effort itself caused us to look at the luxuries that we had and consider how can we utilize them, leverage them for the good of the ministry effort. And so if we had a mission mindset, it it might be something that would convert objects of comfort, objects of our own personal comfort into instruments of redemption in God's hands. And so your home might go from a place of refuge and be used as a hub of hospitality. Like your retirement might go from leisurely expenses and walks to a a season of dedicated volunteering. God may have blessed you with a unique set of skills that you could use for your own benefit to, to Find comfort in blessings that you earn with the good gifts that you have. Or they could be used in an extraordinary way for God's purposes, both locally and globally. The examples that you could come up with to, to, to consider how to do that are as vast as your imagination. And so uh, discussion in those small groups might be a better way to hear examples than what I can provide from the platform but a mission mindset can turn luxurious liabilities into strategic assets. Two, a mission mindset can turn strangers and enemies into friends and family. A mission mindset can turn strangers and enemies into friends and family. Like, do you know that this psalm was sung and prayed for you? For us. Like, we 
as Keystone Church are not the us in the original writers. In the mind of the original writers, in the mind of the original singers, the us is the Israelites. And so as the original Israelites are singing this psalm, God, would you be gracious to us Israelites? Would you bless us Israelites? Would you make your face to shine upon us Israelites so that in 3,000 years there might be men and women who would know your ways and your saving power, see you as a God of justice and power, and have their hearts be full of joy and praise you. Like, that's wild to think about, that we are the result of this prayer being answered by God. And unless we believe that God is done with his mission and his work to the Muslims in Afghanistan, that God's, God's, now that we have been saved, God is done with the Hindus in India and the Buddhists in China. If we had the audacity to believe that as soon as God has saved us and welcomed us into the us of Psalm 67, then we still have work to do. We still have prayers to pray. As long as racism and xenophobia exist in the church, we will not see God's mission completed to the ends of the earth. We need the gospel to tear down the hostility and the barriers that would have existed because of borders and boundaries of customs and cultures. The things that tend to divide us or produce a kind of soft bigotry towards other people groups. We need the gospel to eradicate those so that we might see the world as friends, as family, as people that we care about. The, a mission mindset will convert strangers into family. Lastly, a mission mindset will turn pessimistic duty into a confident delight. When I survey the landscape of our nation, of the world, it can become depressing. Yeah? Like, nations war and rage. Violence abounds. Hatred increases. The, the hostility that the church experiences seems to, to grow more and more and more. It can feel bleak, and maybe you know that we just crossed over the 8 billion people mark. There are 8 billion people on earth. 2.5 of them would call themselves Christian. 2.5 out of 8 billion people. Worse yet, there are 3 billion people who live among unreached people groups who, unless God intervenes, will live their entire lives not hearing the gospel even once. And I recognize that the, the church is sending missionaries. Keystone is sending missionaries. But if we look globally, only 3% of the people that we send and only 1% of the dollars and resources that are given go to these people in unreached people groups. Like, it can feel like the mission is too big, that it's impossible. But look how the psalmist describes what it looks like in verses 5 and 6. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all of the ends of the earth fear him. Some of your translations will, will, will say something like, then 
the world will yield its increase. What's happened is that the psalmist is looking into the future with such confidence that he can look back on the past and say, God has done it. And he's inviting us as a church to, to get into his DeLorean, travel into the future, and then look back and say, look, God has blessed us and the world has known. There is and there will be a multitude of people who will gather around the throne of God from every language, nation, custom, and tongue, praising the God, saying, worthy are you, the lamb who was slain, the savior of the world. That's a kind of confidence that gives me hope. And the reason that we can have this kind of confidence is that this mission is God's mission. The battle belongs to the Lord, and, and if the battle belongs to the Lord, you know, victory is secure. It's not an accident that, that you live where you live. A God, in his divine wisdom and sovereign power, is strategically positioning us as his people among certain people groups, among lost, maybe in your homes, maybe lost in your neighborhood. It's not an accident that we live and learn, work and play where we do. God has given us people all around us. And for some of those people, he's also given us a certain degree of influence where there are people around you right now who will listen to you. And as you speak, they will consider the words that you say. You have been blessed with influence over a certain people. All of us have the opportunity to see God's heart for the lost come to fruition as they learn about God's ways and his salvation, as they see God as a God of justice and power. I would love for Keystone to be a place where we see new life bubbling up from our own interactions because God has sent us to the people in our neighborhoods. And, and God is also sending some of us to new places and new people. Keystone, we want to get behind that. We want to be part of the solution that God is crafting to be sending ambassadors around the world, not just to lost people here or lost people there, but to people who are 100% unreached. And not all of us will do that, but some of us will. There's already a handful of people who it seems like God is calling. Keystone has this hope that God would send 24 people from Keystone to an unreached people group in the next decade. Not everyone will go, but some will. In World War II, um, we ended up sending enlisted men. We drafted men and told them, we want you to go across the Atlantic, across the Pacific, and we want you to fight. But our nation also told the people who were home, we, we want you to stay and we want you to send and the mission required both. Our troops would have been in trouble without the support of the home front. Uh, what I have on the screen and what I have here, these are, um, these are ration books. In fact, this is my uh, grandma's, grandma Rank, uh, uh, my nanny, nanny Rank. Uh, these are her ration books from, I believe, 1942. Uh, Joanne is not a decorated war hero. She was a child. But there was something about what she did that helped us win 
victory. The, the sacrifices that she made and the, the cooperation of millions of people on the home front made sacrifices and, and, and gave and took pain in order to enable us to win. Her sacrifices here won us victory there. And I'm wondering what will it take for us to join God in his missions even when we do not go? I believe one of those ways is prayer because not all of us will voyage across to far nations, learn cultures, learn languages. All of us here have the opportunity to to travel the world in prayer. In my notes, I included uh, two links, one to the Gospel Project, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Joshua Project, uh, as well as to Stratus. These are two websites that are designed for believers to be able to see a kind of world outside of their fingertips, to get to know certain peoples and places and how we as a church can pray for them. You also know people that are in your own spheres of influence. And so I think if, if, if our first step is to pray, make a list of the 10 people that God has put you among in your sphere of influence who you believe you have a voice of influence among. Write them down. Go on to Joshua Project or Stratus and find an unreached people group that you may not know anything about, learn about them, and for a month, pray for both of these lists, for the lost among you and the unreached around the globe. And just see what that might do to align our own prayer our own hopes, not just for our own selves or for our family, but to the ends of the earth. Keystone's elders and staff are committed to having a passion for the nations. It's the reason that we invest as much as we do in missionaries like Desmond and Michelle and people's names that I can't share from the platform because we don't want their names out on the internet, who are in sensitive places where the gospel has significant risk. But we don't want this psalm, this passion to be just the passion and plea of elders and staff. We want it to be an entire church-wide passion. We don't want any conscientious objectors to the mission that God is calling us to. And so that's why um, we pray. And so I'm going to pray for us. Father, I pray that you would captivate our souls with your glory. That we would know, that we would know your ways, your salvation, your justice, your supreme power, and that we would enjoy you, that we would find great joy and gladness in what you are and what you've done, and that our own hearts would sing for joy and praise you. Father, I pray that you would bless us and be gracious to us and make your face to shine upon us so that others would come to know you through us. I pray that the good things that we enjoy would not terminate with us, but would be leveraged for your purposes around the globe. Father, I pray that you would ignite us with a kind of delight in seeing others come to know you and praise you. And we ask that you would do that for your glory, for Keystone's good, but also for the good of the entire world. We said in Jesus' name.